This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. You might remember this. Ten years ago, then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel closed 50 Chicago public schools. It was the largest mass closure in U.S. history. And many teachers, parents, and students protested the decision. It's not about how many schools we have in the city. It's about whether to ensure that every school is a high-quality school, regardless of where a child lives. Our battle cry is no matter what, you can't have these schools. WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times have spent months looking back to that time a decade ago. How did the closings affect the city, students, and their families? And have city and school district officials kept the promises they made? We're joined now by the team behind a new series. WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp, Sun-Times investigative reporter Lauren Fitzpatrick, Sun-Times education reporter Nader Issa and Kate Grossman, WBEZ's Senior Editor for Education. Kate, you've spent months on this project, and most of you have actually covered the school closings 10 years ago. Take us back to that time. What was the atmosphere like when the decision was made? Very, very emotional, very tense. Yeah. Um, you know, this the, the closing, which is actually the anniversary is today. It was May 22nd, 2013. And this had come, you know, which we'll talk about after this eight-month-long process of public hearings and protests and debate and commissions and all kinds of teeth gnashing and upset and rage. Um, so it all culminated, you know, in this in the boardroom. It's a different boardroom than we have currently, and it's sort of in a I think it was in the basement. It was high up, but it felt like a basement because the ceiling was very low. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it felt like a basement. And um, so everyone's packed into this room. There's an overflow room for the folks obviously couldn't fit in there. Um, And just incredibly tense and very, very emotional. Yeah, Lauren, what do you remember? The the district held months of public hearings before members of the board cast their their votes. School officials said that the meetings drew 20,000 people. Do you remember that? Easily. Thousands of people. And the meetings had started out in the community. So um, they tended to be in evenings. They were on Saturdays. So families turned out. Schools turned out. Kids wrote letters. Kids made signs. Children cried. Um, People showed up to represent uh, the good things going on in their schools in these efforts to keep them off the closing list. Mm. Sarah, I was reading some of the old articles that were written uh, back then about the closings. There seemed to me that there was some confusion back then about certain facts and figures that were presented uh, in the district's plan from uh, things like how many students would actually be affected by the closures to how the closure would, would actually help reduce the district's uh, shortfall, $1 billion shortfall at the time. What are the lingering questions that you all set to answer with the series? 
Well, I think one of the questions that is really difficult to answer is whether the school district was able to save a billion dollars or save, you know, as much as they said. And um, if not, how much was actually saved? You know, when you look at the cost savings, you're basically looking at what did you not spend that you would have spent? But that's that's not always so clear. So, you know, you're talking about, okay, this building needed a lot of repair. And so by not doing those repairs, you know, you save that money. But then there's also a question, would you have done those repairs had the building been open? Mm. So there's a lot of those lingering questions. I, I think the the bigger question is whether those savings were enough that it justified sort of the pain that unfolded. Nader, let's bring you in here. I want you to help us just visualize uh, this mass closing. Where are we talking about? Where were the 50 schools? They were very concentrated in a couple parts of the city. On the southwest side, um, there were six schools that closed. On the north side, there were three the remaining 41 were either on the south, far south, or west sides of the city. And wow. anyone who knows um, about how segregated Chicago is, you know those are very majority black communities, some majority Latino communities, but they certainly were concentrated. Yeah, so those were the folks most affected by the closings for sure. And so for this series, you actually talk to a lot of people, right? You you talk to former students, you talk to some current residents in those areas that Nader just talked about. Here is a little bit of what George Smith Jr. had to say about how the closure of his elementary school affected him when he was a student. Got a lot of pride in that school, you know, a lot of memories, a lot of history. You know what I mean? To see it just go to be nothing now and to know what the kids have to go through to go to these different schools it's sad. It's heartbreaking, you know, but that's that's what they do to us, man. They they just displace us and they don't have no care about our neighborhood. You know, they don't care about us. Sarah, this goes back to that disruption we were just talking about, right, uh, of students' education and their lives. Right. And, you know, George Smith Jr. is actually 40 years old, so he wasn't actually in the school when the when the school closed. But he lives right across the street from um, Henson, um, from Woods Elementary. And, you know, Woods was one of the schools that closed. And, you know, I think what he speaks to is this idea that, like, the kids in those schools were affected, but also the communities that were left with these lingering buildings. And also there's something um, that's that a lot of people said, and that's, you know, you go back to elementary school. There's something about, you know, you go and you say hi to that old teacher. Oh, yeah. You you go and you look at, you know, oh, this was my locker. This Mm -hmm. was... And, and you look at how small it was. And, and how small it was, right. Compared you to how it, huge you thought it was when you were right. a kid. Oh, it's, it seemed like a million people were in the audience at the auditorium, but it was only like 100. <laughs> I always went <laughs> to the auditorium and the gym. Right, <laughs> right, because those were the places that you went all the time. And um, for the people who went to these schools that eventually closed, they don't have that. They don't have that that connection back to to the community. And, you know, a lot of people moved away after the schools closed. So... Um, you know, people are scattered. Mm -hmm. So then it's not like you're going to see those people on the street and you're not going to see those people by stopping by the school. So you just don't see those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Ashawn Johnson was a third grader at the time. So here we actually have a, a former student. He became a prominent voice of kids whose lives 
were disrupted. He's uh, here's a clip of him talking back then at a Chicago Teachers Union protest against the school's closing back in 2013. He was so fired up, Lauren. Yes. I mean, what was it like back then seeing just even the kids were fighting for their schools to be saved? It was just heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. He said they don't care about these kids. That was the sense that he had. He was not the only one um, who shared those kinds of feelings. You know, I remember at the community meetings that you had two minutes in which to say your piece to the Board of Education and representatives were there recording it. And I remember one of them on the south side, one little girl, maybe sixth or seventh grade, stood up to make her speech that she had written out. And she started to cry because, of course, she did. And they cut her at the two-minute mark. So that kind of stuff was just really difficult to see. And then, you know, there was a a mother that we've spoken to since who talked about these meetings where, like, kids should have been home doing homework. They should have been home having dinner with their parents. And instead, they were out in these auditoriums and gyms and churches. Um, Dealing with very grown-up issues. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, one thing I about that, too, was that there was a very sort of clinical part on the CPS side. You know, of course, I can't imagine what it was like for them to sit there and have to absorb mm-hmm. all this stuff. But they sort of make a present- they made a presentation kind of laying out the arguments for these schools are under-enrolled, they're low-performing. You know, it's sort of the... the the dichotomy between the sort of intense, like crying and emotion from the community and then the board that was sort of all about facts and figures and money. And this is, you know, the rational thing to do mm-hmm. as opposed to what you were kind of getting from the kids was uh, pretty intense. Well, we just heard from Ashan as a kid. Here he is now. He's a freshman in college. And you talked to him. You asked him about that very speech that he made. Here's a little bit of what he had to say. I just remember feeling, feeling like this fire, more so like this anger, just built, just built up. And I just had to, it felt like a release when I was able to like speak my mind because it felt for so long that I wasn't heard and that nobody was really listening. So his school was one of four schools, Kate, um, that were spared at the last moment. But he said that he was very aware that many other students weren't as fortunate. What happened to students who did see their schools get closed? Where'd they go? So CPS um, called them welcoming schools. These were 51 designated schools that kids were supposed to go to. And in the end, I think about 80 percent, according to UFC study, said that they – that's what the UFC study said. Or anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, they, a lot of the kids did go to the welcoming schools. A lot of them didn't. They chose or they, they left. They went for a time and then they moved on. Mm-hmm. But um, – they so they they designated these schools welcoming schools and they tried to invest in them 155 million dollars for air conditioning for some became stem schools some became uh you know fine arts schools um and we talk a lot in the series about you know this is really a facilities issue cps felt like they had too many seats and not enough kids yeah but they tried to sell it by making it really about school reform and saying that the kids would go to better schools, that they would be better off. Um, And, you know, what we saw was that 
you know, they were most of them were on paper marginally better. Some of them actually not better, mm-hmm. but they might have had a slightly higher performance rating, which is a bunch of different variables. But they were most of them were sort of marginally, if not if not really any better academically than the schools that closed. Irene Robinson, uh, she remembers rallying with other families to keep their schools open. She was taking care of six grandkids who went to Overton Elementary on the south side. I want to play a little bit of what she had to say about the families and how they were affected. We were sisters, we mothers, and the fathers was out here, and the kids was out here. And we watched for the children who parents had to work, and they bring their kids here at 7 in the morning. We was out here. We was out here. It was family. So, Nader, tell us more about the communities and, and just how they you know, rallied around each other. We talked a few moments ago about how these schools were concentrated in majority black areas of the city. Um, and with WBEZ's data master, uh, Alden Lowry, we dug into what exactly that meant for the communities where mm-hmm. the schools closed. Um, and to put this into some context, just how much segregation um, there is in these schools. 88% of the students who attended these 50 closed schools were black. They, at the time that year, made up about 40% of the students in CPS as a whole. So black students were very disproportionately affected by the closings. White students, in the meantime, made up less than a percent of the kids in the closed schools. Once you dig deeper into the community level, and that's that's what uh, Alden helps us with, um, you find out that in the years before the closings, majority black communities were losing population at about the same rate. And that's something that's been well documented. There has been a loss of population in Chicago over the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. But then once you look after the closings, we specifically looked at census tracts with closed schools versus census tracts without closed schools. And the ones with closed schools lost about 9.2% of their population in the five years after the closings, while black census tracts without closed schools lost only three-ish percent. Mm-hmm. And so, so people were still leaving. They, they were leaving and they left at higher rates yeah. from the communities that had closed schools. And you, of course, can't attribute the closings uh, or the population loss to any one thing in particular. But you obviously can tell from the data it didn't help. People were not looking to stick around in communities that didn't have a school. So we mentioned earlier, Kate, uh, then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel said that uh, the schools were closed because they were low-performing and they were under-enrolled and the buildings were just falling apart. How serious were those issues? Um, Well, like I said before, I mean, the prompt was that these schools were under-enrolled based on the capacity that CPS had set for those buildings. So that was the main reason. A lot of these schools had half or a little less than half of what the capacity of the building was. So there were, it became very clear during the reporting at that time that there were problems with the utilization formula so that schools were actually, you know, maybe they only had 300 kids, but they had a large uh, special ed population, mm-hmm. and so they need smaller class sizes, or they were using, they made a sensory room, or they 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 made use of the space in very productive ways that were great for the kids. Yeah, even though on paper, you know, it looked like they were half empty, um, but that was the primary reason. Um, and then a lot of them were falling apart. They were, you know, they ended up picking in the end for the ones to close, the ones that were in pretty bad shape. shape, I mean, they weren't falling apart in the sense, but they're old buildings that, you know, like Sarah was talking about before, they had a lot of deferred maintenance, um, you know, from 
many decades. Mm. Um, and then they layered on in the end, um, low performing because they wanted to, they started with the list. It was, I think over 300 schools out of, I don't know what there were 600 and some odd schools mm-hmm. at the time. So about half yeah. were in, on the initial closure consideration list. I see. And so they whittled and it, it went down. all the way down. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, Lauren, Emmanuel, he inherited a lot of these issues that Kate is talking about. When he took office, right? He did. Yeah, he did. In the decades before he took office, um, you had Mayor Daley, you had then CEO Arnie Duncan um, opening all kinds of new schools, um, while enrollment was already starting to shrink a little bit. Um, By 1995, you have charter schools being allowed to open in Chicago. They do. They expand. Um, so, you know, the, the the shrinking enrollment was just becoming more and more diluted yeah. with all of this kind of competition. So um, Duncan and, and Daly did close some schools. I mean, closing in 2013 was hardly a new thing, but they definitely didn't keep up with the pace at which they were opening schools. Um, and, um, you know, when, when CEO Barbara Bird Bennett, who was in charge at the closings, she came in and she talked about how just... Closing a few at a time was piecemeal, was mm. caused chaos. It was more disruptive. And she thought the better way to do it was just to rip the Band-Aid off all at once. Yeah. Speaking of um, then-CPS CEO Bird Bennett, so Emmanuel's appointed school board and her, they 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 needed to act. They agreed. And, and so here's a bit of a CPS press release from back in that time, Sarah. It reads, in part— Quote, CPS simply has too many schools and too few children. Today, CPS has space for over 500,000 students, but just over 400,000 are enrolled in our schools. This is stretching its resources much too thin. Yeah. So so tell us more about how city and school leaders were actually presenting this plan and, and just really making their case. Sure. And it's it's sort of like what what Kate was saying before. They put a lot of money, $155 million into these, you know, the the schools that were designated to take in kids from the closed schools. They, you know, they bought an iPad for every child. They put air conditioners in, in every room. They, um, you know, they, they were providing extra staff, um, safe passage, which we know today was one of the things that was born out of, um, you know, sort of that time or really expanded during that time. So they're saying like, okay, all the people who were worried about kids walking from from one school to another, mm-hmm. we're going to help them. You know, we're going to make sure that they're okay. Um, so they, they did try to say like, here, you're going to, your child was going to a broke down school, low performing school. Now they get to go to a school with all the bells and whistles. Mm-hmm. But at the time, are community members feeling like their voices are being heard? No. and And the thing is too... You know, these are things, and what you heard a lot at these hearings is what was important to parents was relationships and the way their their school made them feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people were like, I'm sending my child to this school. I went to the school. My sister went to the school. You know, there was a family yeah. thing, right? You know, this was like their family elementary school. And those are the things that, you know, you can't just buy. And that was, you know— that was one of the big disconnects. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should note Mayor Brandon Johnson was an organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union back then. What was the relationship between the CTU, Lauren, and, and, and the district leaders? 
So when I stop to think that all these things happened in the same year, 50 closings, that school year started out with the teacher strike. It did. It did. Mm -hmm. So that relationship uh, between the mayor and the CTU definitely was not great. Um, You know, CEO Bird Bennett was, I think one of the reasons she got the promotion she did to be in charge of the schools is because she had a decent relationship with the CTU um, working through the strike. But, but so, so that's where the school year starts, like work stoppage, thousands of teachers in the streets, um, lots of Mm anti-manual signs and messages. And then the school year ends with 50 schools disappearing. Let's jump to the phone lines. We've got uh, Medina and Gresham calling. Hi, welcome to Reset. Yes. Good morning. Thanks for having my call. Sure. I'd just like to say that I've got a lot of friends who have children, grandchildren in those closed schools, and we've been talking over the past 10 years about how when the schools are closed, that, of course, increases a lot of young people who have no skills. They haven't finished their education because a lot of them dropped out. We have a high dropout rate. And with that less education and those skills, that might not be the only cause, but it's a big determining factor in the rise in crimes. Mm. Thanks for your call, Medina. And, you know, I, I want to say that I, I hear this a lot from people out that, you know, that I've interviewed that, you know, there, it's very hard to to connect one dot to another, like, um, empirically, like, okay, this is, the school is closed and there's, and therefore we see a lot of young people doing crime. But there's definitely a sense in communities that that there's a connection. Um, yeah, she, she's not two. alone in that. Thought. Right. I mean, I, I I heard it from 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 many people who really know on the ground what's going on. So you know, there, there's a lot of feeling about that. Now let's dig into what happened to the buildings themselves. The 50 school closures left behind 46 empty buildings. That's because four schools shared facilities. Now, Nader, the team visited every building for the series. What did you find? There's a wide range of results when when you look at the, the closed buildings. When you walk by, you walk through these communities. I would say the biggest thing that has stuck with me since we started visiting them in October, sometime in the fall... Some of these buildings are just really vast, huge, beautiful buildings. I mean, there are there's a few that take up an entire city block. They're they're gorgeous mm. buildings, architecture, all that. And walking around the neighborhood, you can't help but think, what if I lived across the street? What if I lived in this home right here, mm-hmm. and I had this beautiful school? There were every morning I'd wake up, I'd hear kids laughing and playing, parents dropping their kids off, grandparents picking them up after school, and then all of a sudden it's just all gone. Mm. And There's nothing like that sound, by the way, right, of the kids mm-hmm. playing in the playground midday. I, I love that. Yeah, and, and some of these buildings that we reported in the series, some of them have been kept up. A lot of times neighbors are sort of ch- chipping in to pick up trash, um, there's one building we visited. These these uh, lovely gentlemen were sitting on a porch when we approached them, and they graduated from the school in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. and they still live there across the street. And one of them just said, this is our baby. Like the, we, we love this building. We Aww. remember walking the halls. We 
help pick up trash. We put out a grill to grill for neighbors in the summer, put up a projector to watch sports games. And so it, then there's other buildings where the city, the new owner, whoever it is, just hasn't kept them up. You mm-hmm. see weeds growing um, knee, chest high. You see trash and litter all over. You see boarded up windows, um, broken windows that wow. haven't been boarded up. A range here. A, yeah. A difference. Um, you talk to, to dozens of neighbors, including those those gentlemen you just talked about. Um, I want to play a little bit from Sherita Covington, though. Here's what she had to say about living near the former Ross Elementary in Washington Park. It's a lot of work that needs to be done. Not just the schools. Centers. Daycares. Look at that center. That church. It's It's like Every corner, every block, you can go down. It's like literally five vacant buildings, four vacant schools before you get to the expressway. Like, come on now. So, Lauren, she's reiterating some of the frustration that Nader was just uh, talking about, right? I mean, this is what people had warned Rahm Emanuel would happen, isn't it? They had, absolutely. And for some of the reasons that Nader just laid out, that schools are very particular places, and the older ones were built to be gigantic. They had very specific purposes that are not easy to turn around into new purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, They were already in neighborhoods that were losing some population that had seen a lot of disinvestment. Um, So they're they're kind of tricky to reimagine without a sense of um, imagination. And, you know, also like the schools had been, they had been these wonderful anchors, in the community, this is the word that people used when they spoke out in support of their schools. Yeah. This is a community anchor. So not only was that good thing going away, but then it left a hole. School officials promised all buildings would soon be repurposed after the schools were closed. I mean, what kind of plan did they propose exactly, Sarah, just so we're clear? So what was supposed to happen <laughs> was that they were supposed to have the aldermen to hold community meetings, figure out what they want, and somehow that was going to turn into um, what they wanted happening. wasn't really clear how this was going to happen, but it was supposed to happen by 2015 when Mayor Rahm Emanuel was up for re-election. Mm-hmm. Now, handing the, the process over to the aldermen was probably one of the first issues because aldermen are up for re-election. There's a lot of turnover, they, you know. So and and they're politicians, so they're trying to weigh a lot of interest and they might, you know, they might be nervous to take a stand and say, okay, this is what a building might be. But then, you know, after that, there wasn't really much of a outline on how they would get it done. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you came up with a great idea, how do you how do you make that happen? So today, only 20 buildings are back in use. Um, Kate, what happened to the 26 buildings that aren't being used right now? So um, 16 of them are still owned by the city or CPS, and they're vacant. They okay. just sit there. Um, the way we, you know, Nader described, they're just forlorn. <laughs> Grass hulks. growing up to your chest yeah, and your Yeah, I mean, knees. some of them, some of the, the city does try to keep them up in terms of mowing the lawn, mowing the grass and boarding up. Um, so, you know, some are in better shape just in terms of upkeep, just the cosmetic yeah. part, but they're, they're vacant. And so they're just sort of this hulking shadow, yeah. you know, lingering over the community. Lauren, when was the last push to sell these buildings? 2017. Oh, wow. 2017. <laughs> 
Um, Six years ago. Yeah. And, you know, the the, the community-led process um, didn't pan out exactly. So um, Bird Bennett's successor, a very efficient gentleman named Forrest Claypool, came in and said, okay, let's just put them out to bid and see what we can sell. They did have some success in selling some of the buildings um, and, and finding interested buyers, I should say, anyway. But mm-hmm. not all of those deals went through. And then I want to say, too, that um, when Mayor Lori Lightfoot took office in 2019, she just she put a pin, she put a pause on the whole process. So, like, nothing has been active since at least 2019, just wow. four out of these 10 years. You can go on the website and see which buildings might be for sale if you're interested in a building, <laughs> by, by the way. Thanks, Sarah, for that plug. Um, so I do want to point out there are some success stories, but they're rare. Uh, the old Mays Elementary School building in Inglewood has become an important hub for the neighborhood. Uh, here's um, Brian Anderson, who runs his nonprofit Shepherd's Hope there. Uh, there's a little snippet of what he said about why he bought the building a few years ago. It was $55,000. The Lord wanted us to have this building, so that's the reason we're here. So if you didn't hear that, he said, the Lord wanted us to have this building. That's why we're here. Nader, it serves, that center that he started, it serves 6,000 folks a week. So just tell us a bit more about Anderson's nonprofit and how he was able to just turn that building into this bustling community center. Yeah, you walk through it, and and it feels like you're walking through a school. This isn't one of those buildings that underwent a massive renovation or has all these new bells and whistles. It it really does feel like a school. You still see the lockers. They have a daycare in the back where they use some of the old lockers from the Mays Elementary School. You walk into the cafeteria and there's lunch ladies telling you what's for lunch mm. because people are coming in uh, to to eat hot meals and um, he, the center serving serving community residents and interestingly enough serving alumni of of the school and yeah you walk through and it, it just feels like a school it, it it feels almost like you were transported back to the eighties and all of the color schemes um, and and you walk in people do appreciate the mental health services the health clinic. They run a basketball clinic, um, teach kids basketball. There are church services. Wow. There's just a wide variety of things going so on in the building. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's it's one of the only, I would say, success stories we've seen across the city in these buildings where it really accomplished what people wanted to see, which was a building that people can still come to, a hub like Lauren was talking about, an anchor that people can come to and still yeah. benefit in their community. Well, we got a question from a caller. Uh, TJ from West Humboldt Park is wondering if any of you folks can talk about what happened to the schools closed around Humboldt Park. Anyone remember that? Well, the biggest school, Lafayette, is um, now Shy Arts. Um, so oh, that's, that, right. that's that's renovated. But then... De Diego is around there, but that's that's just vacant, right? That is in the process of becoming some kind of housing, but I think that process has sort of just finally um, gotten underway. I see. That school had a little annex, too, and that was converted a couple of years ago into um, a sort of preschool daycare for uh, children in the neighborhood. Hmm, good to know. Hey, Kate, I mean, when it comes to the current conditions of these buildings, all the things that we've been talking about, how much responsibility have city and, and school leaders taken? 
Um, well, so as I was saying before, they, they are responsible for sort of basic upkeep, the grass, the boarding up, um, that kind of thing. So there are 16 properties that are still owned by either CPS or the city. Yeah. The, the real issue um, that the reporters discovered was that there's 10 properties that are sold but haven't been redeveloped yet. Um, some are close to being done. Many of them, there's like nothing happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but CPS is out of the picture. And in a lot of them, there's n- there's nobody taking care of the property. And those, um, from what, what they've shared, was they were those are in the worst condition. Oh, they were by far in the worst yeah. condition. We pulled up to a couple of them. One was Songhai on the far south side. Yeah. And then Yale in Englewood, which had been purchased by the same development company. And we couldn't believe how, I mean, the weeds were up to my chest and there was just trash everywhere. Yeah. Well, uh, before we take a pause, Sarah, I'm curious because current CPS CEO Pedro Martinez blamed the pandemic for redevelopment delays. And he says that he's looking forward to working with Mayor Brandon Johnson on, you know, continuing. So uh, any idea what Mayor Johnson has in mind for these buildings we're talking about? Not really, not specifically. I mean, he he has talked about a little bit about what he thinks should be done to the for the current underutilized buildings, but not really about the the vacant schools just just left behind from from these closings. So hopefully, we will get that an answer from him. Um, as so much on his unfolds, plate already. We will. We will <laughs> Week two on the job. To, yeah, we'll be asking him. When the city closed 50 schools in 2013, there were a lot of promises made around school reform and neighborhood development. So let's review the three core promises city and school leaders made at the time of the closings. One, students would be better off after the schools were closed. Two, their new schools would be transformed. And three, former school buildings would be reborn as community assets. So on a scale of one to ten, how well did city and school leaders keep their promises? I'll start with you, Kate. Um, well, I'll I'll give you a number, and it's not good. <laughs> okay. But I will just say, um, you know, one of the big issues I was rereading, I was on the editorial board at the Sun-Times when this happened, and the one thing that they did not too bad was just sort of the the basics, which was collect, close down the schools and move the kids to other schools. There were, it was often very chaotic, and there were lots of tr- problems, mm-hmm. but... They actually did a little, like the bar was very low, they actually did a little bit better than expected in terms of just the sort of orchestrating, you know. Yeah, getting them from one to the other. Run to the other. So uh, I want to just give them a little credit for that. I hired a former Marine to kind of oversee the furniture, the buildings, all that. Okay. But in terms of the promises. What's the grade? One. Okay. (laughs) Lauren, is that higher than you would have? It is not. Okay. It is not higher than I would have gone either. Based on the buildings alone, which is where I spent the most time reporting, I mean, I was shocked to learn just how very many of these buildings still are not useful in any possible way to the people around them. Mm. Nader? Well, one, if that's the lowest you can go, and I think an important thing to note here, too, is we sort of discovered in this reporting, to be able to keep a promise, you have to track whether or not you're keeping it, and nothing has been tracked. We we had questions that sort of go unanswered about buildings, mm-hmm. about kids, about communities, about the welcoming schools. I mean, there are officials in CPS 
who don't even know what the term welcoming school is 10 years later. And yeah. so it just wasn't something that stayed in the system's collective memory. Very good points. On a scale of 1 to 10, Sarah, where where does this land? But what I want to say, there is this um, Sharita Covington, who we, we um, played her, her cut here. When, when we were talking to her, she was talking about her school. She didn't go to a closed school, but um, a school that was threatened with closing. And she said... Um, we were on level zero, <laughs> which it was, and I sort of think about maybe that's the that's where they they sort of landed. Um, because they, so you're giving this a, a zero out of ten. Well, is that a is that a I don't know if there's I mean, a level zero. I mean, <laughs> there's a zero, but but one thing I will say is like you know they did you know people kids did move and there are some examples of you know buildings being reused for good purposes so that's that's something mm-hmm. and um i did talk to one official who is squarely against school closings but they do say that you know if today facing what we are facing which was under which is underutilized buildings which can be debated mm-hmm. but we we have way fewer kids you know an acceleration of declining enrollment over the last 10 years if today we were looking at a situation where we had 50 more schools on the books, mm-hmm. that would that would probably make it harder to to figure out our next steps. Well, tell me this, Sarah, because another question that you, you sought to answer in this series was whether these mass closings saved any money. Did it? I mean, it probably did. Okay. It probably did. I mean, I, we, we have to be honest about that, that, that there was money. You know, you, there's there's less principles Less assistant principals. You don't need an assistant principal. You know, you you don't need as many clerks. Um, you know, there are things. You don't need to heat buildings. You don't need to air condition buildings. Now, the fact that the school system was unable to offload a lot of these buildings means that some of those savings have been, you know, cut into severely because they're still sending somebody around there to cut the lawn. They're still sending someone around there to, mm. you know, do some stuff to board, reboard up the buildings and reboard up the buildings so um so the the savings aren't as clear um and as i said at the the beginning the costs yeah might outweigh those well lauren i know you have you want to say something let's hear from uh cps ceo pedro martinez because he weighed in on this savings conversation too and then i'll get your thoughts on the back end i strongly believe that the costs of, of closing schools in terms of the lost trust uh, the challenges, you know, dealing with, with the facilities and, and moving children, I think for the most part have, you know, in my experience in the last 20 years, outweigh any benefits you get from it. Does he have a point? He has acknowledged um, these non-tangible costs that come when you shut down a community institution, how it makes people feel, other decisions people decide to make with their lives. And I think in my memory, he is one of the first um, high up city officials to to make that acknowledgement. Yeah, I think the other thing I wanted to say about cost is that did CPS save money in its budget on its books? Maybe. However, if you are a taxpayer in the city of Chicago, you paid for these buildings in so many other ways. You paid for tax credits to do some of the redevelopment. You paid for a beautiful renovation of the Pope Elementary School in Douglas Park to become a CHA facility where housing applicants can go and get help. It's gorgeous. Mm. So far, they've spent $18.5 million there. So we as taxpayers have given out lots of other kinds of incentives Mm -hmm. and um, 
and all to help these buildings become something more useful or at least less dangerous. And that is not something that city leaders talked about a decade ago, that that would be part of this collective um, yeah, part of this collective. Well, Nader, let's let's keep talking money here. CPS is approaching a six hundred twenty-eight million dollar deficit. I know one of the main problems here is this uh, shortage of state education funding. How likely is it that the district will get more state funding? Walk us through that. Leaders have been talking forever about getting more education funding. It's it's not new in Chicago. It's not new in other major urban districts around the country. You would think maybe now with a mayor, Brandon Johnson, who is very focused on traditional public schools, on his whole platform that he ran on with schools was to fully fund schools, and you need money, more money than they have to do that. Mm-hmm. You would think uh, he and maybe a, a, a Democratic-led legislature, Governor Pritzker, who has tried to put more money into education, you would think now might be the time to work on that. And it, it um, we sort of laughed a little bit. It was, it was funny to see Pedro Martinez, the CPS CEO, and Stacey Davis-Gates, the Chicago Teachers Union president, went down to Springfield together a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, compared to the relationship between CTU and CPS with the 2019 strike over the past decade since the closings, all of the school reopening negotiations – it seems like finally they might be coming together to address this existential issue, which is there is a nearly $630 million deficit staring CPS in the face in two years. And yeah. you're going to have to make some big decisions if you don't get money to, to fill that hole. We have covered a lot of ground this hour, Kate. Anything else that stands out to you in this research that folks should know about? Um, well, I do want to share something that Lauren reminded us during the break, that we did reach out to Rahm Emanuel to, to see if he had a comment and Barbara Bird Bennett, who was the CEO at the time, to give them an opportunity to, you know, to talk about these promises. Yeah. And, and, and we didn't hear back from them. So just just wanted to share that. Um, I think just I just think the enormity of it. I mean, it was so huge at the time. Mm-hmm. And as often big news stories, then it it kind of. After the school started in the fall, we did a lot of coverage. You know, I was at one, you know Ellington Elementary School on the first day, mm-hmm. and it was you know chaotic and crazy. And but then things get quiet. Yeah. And so I think that's you know to be able to go and see the enormity continued, but not in protests and but you know in in small and profound ways. You know, at Henson School, at the kid who went to a welcoming school and then transferred three more times afterwards. You know, yeah. just that um, this huge eruption mm-hmm. then, you know, slowly trickled through the city and all these neighborhoods for the last 10 years. And I think that's yeah, it's not something that I've just been thinking about a lot as we've been doing this project. And you've been, you're going to publish some more stories in the weeks ahead. We can't wait for those. They're all up on WBEZ.org. Would you believe that? We are out of time. We've been talking with WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp, Chicago Sun-Times investigative reporter Lauren Fitzpatrick, Chicago Sun-Times education reporter Nader Issa, and Kate Grossman, WBEZ senior editor, senior editor rather for education. Check out their new series on the 10 10-year anniversary of 50 closed Chicago public schools. It's up on our website right now on the homepage wbez.org. Great work all. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.
This episode of Reset was produced by Stephanie Kim, and it was edited by Dan Tucker and Ethan Schwab. To read more about this story and what happened to the school buildings closed, check out the series at wbez.org and suntimes.com. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.